So I drove out, check on some cows, and I drove out with the intent of checking on them because wolves were in the area. And what I found was uh, a couple of eagles, and, uh, and they had just landed on this fresh carcass. And it was a calf. The calf was born in March, and it had uh, its intestines were eaten out. Much of its hindquarters were gone. And uh, I drove up there, got out, took a look, and something wasn't right about it. I've seen lots of dead animals, uh, and not trying to brag on that. You know, it's a point of shame that any of them died on my watch. But I've, if you ranch very much, you raise very many cattle, you're going to see it. So I walked up there, took a look, and, and a chill just went through me. And, and I knew right then it, a wolf had killed it. So... These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So I'm sitting here in the Wallowa County Courthouse with my dad, Todd Nash, who is, amongst other things, an expert, I will say, in the history of, or the recent history of, of wolves in Oregon, because you've been heavily involved in, in this from, from both sides of the fence, if you will, both sides of the wolf. But the history of the wolf in Oregon goes back a lot farther. So back in 1859, when Oregon was founded as a state, what was going on then? Well, there was issues with wolves at the time, killing livestock in particular. And, and so settlers came together to try to find a way to mitigate those issues and develop the state. And, and those were the very first meetings on statehood. So they were surrounding wolves. And to establish a bounty on wolves. But... You know, there was some really intense pressure put on wolves moving forward from there. Um, all the way up into the early 1900s, wolves were still being uh, persecuted as much as maybe any animal um, ever has been in North America with poison and trapping and bounties and, you know, everything we could possibly do to, quote unquote, get rid of wolves. And they were a competing resource for us. You know, we didn't have a lot of wild game um, at the time. We were settling new country all the time, and to lose livestock to a wolf, um, especially during pioneer days, was devastating, absolutely devastating. So something had to be done. Well, you can well imagine if you brought your Jersey cow from St. Joe, Missouri, and you got that somewhere south of Oregon City, and, and a wolf killed the, your cow, how, how much of an impact that would have been at the time. Right, and then what are you going to do? Go to the sale yard and buy a new cow with the money that you don't have at the sale yard that doesn't exist. So that's a source of, of perpetual food and income. and Yeah, tough deal. Really tough deal. So when, was, when did wolves actually kind of get killed out of Oregon or out of the lower 48? Uh, the last recordings is somewhere back in the 1940s, is what I understand. Uh, some of the last wolves getting killed out of the Rogue Valley and, and north of there around Roseburg area. 
Okay. So that was kind of the, the last stronghold. Yep. As I understand it. Yeah. And then how did wolves make their way back? Well, that's an interesting story. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they went to Congress and asked for money to reintroduce wolves in the lower 48. Congress denied them those funds. U.S. Fish and Wildlife went ahead and proceeded, and they took money from Robert Pittman, and um, and they went ahead and, and uh, uh, transferred wolves from Mackenzie Valley in Canada and brought them down to Yellowstone and central Idaho. And the Pittman-Robertson Act, which... I'll do an entire podcast on at some point because it's fascinating, but it is an excise tax on, um, on gun sales, on ammunition sales, and that money funds conservation projects primarily. And it's a federal fund that gets kicked back to states that is in direct correlation with the number of hunting licenses that that state sells. So the bulk of the, the federal money for conservation actually comes from the sale of firearms and ammunition. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service denied funding from Congress, just dipped out of money coming from hunters and shooters and bought wolves from Canada. Canada must have thought that was a smoking deal. Well, I'm sure they did, yeah. I don't know how much money was actually transferred to the Canadian government. But I understand it was a very expensive venture. And some of the data on that uh, was covered up. Uh, there was actually a guy that uh, that was a whistleblower. And uh, uh, forgive me for not knowing his name right now. But uh, he took a payoff. Uh, he, it was either be fired or take a payoff. And, and he was under a gag order for uh, for a long time. And then when he finally came out, then he wrote about all of uh, what took place there after the gag order was lifted. Shady. Extremely. Super shady. Very. Yeah. But neither here nor there because it happened. So they reintroduced wolves into the Frank Church Wilderness in central Idaho, Yellowstone National Park. At the time, there was already wolves coming into the Nine Mile area in in, uh, northwest Montana. Um, there's a book written about that pack called the nine mile wolves. Okay. So then what happens? Do those wolves just, uh, stay place in those gigantic wilderness areas? No, it was kind of interesting because some of the biologists were looking at that and, uh, they thought that out of Yellowstone that they would see wolves into Western Montana within a few years and ended up to be within weeks as I understand. Um, Oregon didn't have a wolf plan at the time. And so the first wolves that came into Oregon back in 2007 were actually picked up. They came over with collars on, were actually picked up, and they transported them back to Idaho and released them there again. Uh, Governor Kulingowski at the time um, conscripted, along with ODF&W, that there should be a a wolf plan and a wolf recovery plan uh, in Oregon. And so that was worked on by a group of stakeholders. And uh, in fact, we're sitting here in the courthouse where Ben Boswell, commissioner of Wallowa County, uh, was very instrumental in working on that. Mac Berkmeyer, another resident from Wallowa County, worked on that from the Cattlemen's. Um, and there were stakeholders from Defenders of Wildlife and and uh, and a myriad of others that uh, that were in there. And, and in 2005, uh, the first wolf plan uh, for for Oregon w- was uh, was established and voted on and adopted by the ODFW Commission. Hmm. Now, what was the penalty for for killing a wolf in Oregon at that time? Well, they were federally listed at the time, and so it was $100,000 and, and a year in prison. And were there any situations where it would be legal to kill a wolf? Could you kill a wolf if you were defending yourself? Yes, and so self-defense wasn't clearly defined at the time, but self-defense was always the position at which you could take a wolf. Um, and then there was latitude 
with U.S. Fish and Wildlife at the time, too. And you go back to 2009 in the Keating Valley, and there was a couple of wolves that got in trouble over there. They killed Kurt Jacobson's sheep, uh, quite a number of them, and then Tick Moore lost a calf or two. And, and, uh, and so they went to lethal take on that pack under federal listing and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And i point out, I, those were the only two wolves that were known to exist at the time in the state of Oregon, that at least publicly they uh, had divulged. Interesting. And did they end up killing them? They did. Yeah. When did we first start experiencing depredations on livestock from wolves here in Wallowa County? So I actually saw my first depredation in 2009. And I didn't know what I was looking at at the time. I had uh, eight fall calving pairs in a little pasture. And when I say little pasture, it was for for us uh, about 320-acre pasture. And I went out to gather these pairs up. And uh, um, they all had calves with them uh, the week prior. Uh, but I go out, and there I can only find seven calves. And the one cow obviously hadn't been nursed for a for a time and um, it was snowing really hard and I followed her around for a while thinking she would lead me back to her calf and maybe it was sick or I I really didn't know maybe it was dead but uh, um, anyway I I ended up leaving the cow I, I took the other seven in and then I went back the next day and what I found was a, a whole hillside uh, that was ravaged. There's blood all over the hillside. At the bottom, there was a rib cage, and most everything was gone. And I, I found a couple coyotes that were chewing on the rib cage. And this was a fairly large calf. He was probably 275, 300-pound calf at the time. And, uh, and I thought to myself, um, we knew that there was wolves in the area at that point. But uh, the naivety and, um, I guess, uh, hard to put a, a picture on, uh, on feelings at the time, but I, I, w- I was in denial that, that uh, wolves would have come over that close in, in kind of wide open range. I, I didn't know much about them. Didn't even cross my mind. But what I thought was, my gosh, I can't believe those coyotes killed that big a calf. I've never seen anything like that before. And so that's what I thought at the time, and uh, perplexed by it, didn't make a big issue of it. Um, rarely lost animals, uh, livestock, two predators, and so it was all a little bit new to me, but um, never did I think uh, until about a year later that that was wolves. And our coyotes around here, between 18, 26 pounds, 90% of them. So for them to consume 350 pounds of calf overnight, take quite a few coyotes. Yes, it would. Yeah. But it's just how it works. You know, it's just not in your mind that that's a possibility. And it's hard to understand something that's brand new. And and there is a lot of adjustment for for everybody here uh, as wolves started to show up. So uh, what happened next? Well, uh, next for me was I, I gathered cows um, that were spring calvers, and, and I was running fairly large numbers at the time, and um, had about 300 cows on one side, um, and uh, they were all paired up. They, they all went out as pairs, uh, but when I got to the corral that fall, and uh, I didn't have exact numbers on the cows that went there, and it's hard to describe for people that run in nice, easy little paddocks, but I end up scattering in a lot of different direction, going to different private pastures and federal ground and and uh, very rough country, and, and it, it's hard to, to uh, keep track of everything exactly. But when I got to the corral that fall, and I, I was noticing more and more dry cows, and I had about 20 cows that were dry that should have had calves with them. And normally you expect somewhere around a 1% loss uh, at turnout. So, you know, three might have been normal. But uh, 20, um, I knew something was wrong, and I had a really sick feeling. Yeah. 
So to, to give people some concept of, of the area that these cattle are spending their time in, how long does it take you to, to ride these canyons to gather all the cattle in the fall? Oh, it's a big area. So the stretch of canyon that I ran in was primarily Big Sheep Creek. And from the bottom of my permitted and private ground to the top end was 31 miles as the crow flies. And then you had, uh, in places over 2,000 feet, a, a vertical lift out of the canyon to the top. And I went from the top to the bottom to the top to the bottom, uh, transversing that canyon oh, four or five times throughout the year. And, and that was just one piece of it. And so you know, running over 700 head most of the time. And so that was just the 300 and some that, that went that direction. Okay. Um, so it's very fair to say that these cattle are traveling, you know, 100 miles a year. Yeah, uh, um, from where they wintered uh, to where I ended up in the summer, uh, again, just as the crow flies, it was a 120-mile round trip. And so to gather, people say, have you, have you got done gathering yet? My gathering pretty much took year-round. I was either gathering to move from one pasture to another or, or one portion of the of, uh, canyon to another to winter ground, back to spring ground, um, in transition all the time. And just riding on horseback, you know, driving the very limited places that you can get to with a vehicle – um, hiking on foot, using dogs to, to find these cattle. All of that um, still often isn't enough, and you end up having to fly in a bush plane to, to find more cattle so that you can go in after them. And, you know, you're riding 20, 30, 40-mile days to get this done just to get, you know, this, this 12 head of cattle and then bring them out and then ride back in the next day and, and find some more. And these cattle are living like like wild animals they're out there living like elk almost identically to elk and it's very much i think what people who are critical of sort of commercial cattle operations or feedlot operations like this is how they want their cattle to be living but oftentimes those are the same people that will criticize you and be like you're not taking care of these animals why aren't you bringing them into the barn at night which is just completely unrealistic but Anyways, so people have the scope of this. Like this is a gigantic, amazingly rugged area that, you know, is it, just almost impossible to get around in. And, uh, you know, I, I know, um, you know, you were riding one time and, uh, and, you know, the best horse you ever had slipped and, and fell to his death in this canyon. And like that's the type of area that we're, we're talking about. Extremely difficult terrain extremely difficult so you bring these cattle all in and you have 20 20 head of calves missing and are the cattle acting the way cattle have always acted or are they normal well it was a little different it, it wasn't significantly different at first uh, but over time uh, you would notice things um, one of the first cows that I remember seeing, she had some bite marks on her side, which was unusual. It's an unusual attack point, and I, I'm not sure. Maybe she was in some timber and brushed up against a tree. It might not even be a wolf bite, but she didn't have a calf with her. Knew the cow very well, gentle cow. And uh, as I approached her from about a quarter mile away, I could hear her bawling, and she was bawling at me. She was upset. She was upset at my dogs, uh, and... You know, we have uh, cows that, that handle well with dogs, and we have cows that we classify as dog fighters. And at first, I just thought, man, I don't ever remember that cow being a dog fighter. That is very unusual. And then, um, after driving her for uh, along with some other cows for about a mile, uh, my assessment was different. Um, she wasn't fighting. She was just scared, and she was literally crying. And she would turn around and 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 ball, and then she'd you know go back in the middle of the herd. She never did try to fight the dogs. Uh, she, but then uh, when we got a little closer to the corral and we went about a mile, you could just see her melt. And uh, 
you could just see her uh, uh, analyze things a little bit and go, oh, those are border collies. That's different. They're not going to kill me. And uh, um, and so that that was a, a really a, a, an interesting moment for me to to see that all take place. Um, the other thing that transpired over time, a lot of the timber country there, uh, we would go in and, and we'd whoop and holler. That would be the first thing we'd do. And, and those cows would start bawling at their calves and they'd gather them up. They knew that we were coming and they wanted to be with their calves. They knew they, they didn't want to leave them behind. And that was just an immediate response. Over a few years, we'd enter some timber and whoop and holler. And those cows wouldn't call out to their calves anymore. And, uh, in fact, you could ride right past a cow, and, uh, and, and she would just be still. And uh, it was very odd. And um, I relayed that to some of the other ranchers that ran on the association that I was in out there. We had a 72,000-acre timber allotment, and, uh, and they, they said the same thing. They said, yeah. They don't talk to each other like they used to. Yeah, and we've seen the same thing with elk. We've seen the same thing with elk as as they, you know, are around wolves more and more. They're vocalizing less because it's giving away their position. So kind of how did things progress from there? So from 2009, in that later fall there, we were told that there were one or maybe two wolves uh, in our area. And uh, Pat Matthews, ODF&W biologist here in Wallowa County, he went out and got a video in the upper end of Big Sheep. And there were 10 or 11 wolves. It's hard to tell in the video. Uh, There's a flash of maybe 11th wolf there. But 10 or 11 wolves. And uh, and it confirmed in me what had taken place over the summer and why I was 20 heads short. Um, that was the established as the Amnaha pack. Um, B300 uh, was a colored wolf that came from Idaho, and she had a VHF collar on her. And come to find out later that ODFW had very good documentation that she had had a litter of pups in the head of Grouse Creek in 2008 and 2009, and uh, they they knew full well exactly how many wolves were out there had a good idea but still had retorted to us that there was one or two wolves so that's how i got introduced to wolves so why was a state agency feeling at will to to lie to people about this stuff i can't answer to what they were doing or what motivated them to do such a thing it's frustrating but it wasn't the end of of frustration with that and you know, you ended up basically getting involved. Like you, you didn't just sit back and be like, well, this sucks or go out there and try and start poaching wolves. Like you went at it and started to try to work on this Oregon wolf plan and, and create legislation that, you know, was, was more fair. So, I mean, tell me about that. So I had never really been in a leadership position before in my community. Um, I was asked sometime before that to uh, take an officer position for the Wallowa County Stock Growers. And so that was, uh, my presidency was from 2010 uh, to 12. And and so during that two-year term, I I was determined that I was going to try to represent the, the stock growers here in Wallowa County the best I could. It just happened to be that that was a time when wolves really inundated us. In May of 2010, we started getting confirmed kills. I myself had the fourth confirmed kill in the state of Oregon. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say the state of Oregon, in Wallowa County from the Amnaha pack. And a confirmed kill means that what, what what has taken place in order to get a confirmed kill? Well, in this instance uh, uh, may 20th uh, 2010 um i'll give you the scenario so i drove out check on some cows and i drove out with the intent of checking on them because wolves were in the area and what i found was uh, a couple of eagles 
and uh, and they had just landed on this fresh carcass, and it was a calf. The calf was born in March, and it had uh, its intestines were eaten out. Much of its hindquarters were gone, and uh, I drove up there, got out, took a look, and something wasn't right about it. I've seen lots of dead animals, uh, and not trying to brag on that. You know, it's a point of shame that any of them died on my watch. But I've, if you ranch very much, you raise very many cattle, you're going to see it. So I walked up there, took a look, and, and a chill just went through me. And, and I knew right then it, a wolf had killed it. So I called our sheriff who had offered to get involved, Fred Steen. Um, he went ahead and called ODF&W. Vic Coggins, who was one of the most respected uh, ODF&W biologists in the state, came out, um, and uh, we took a look around there, found Vic, found wolf tracks. Um, he found where they had uh, crapped out blood, uh, which they had eaten so much that they there was probably only a couple of them they'd eaten so much that they had uh, crapped out that calf right there on the spot and um teeth marks were hard to find uh that they you know uh, to get a confirmed kill they want to find uh, teeth marks that are of the appropriate diameter one and five eighths inches to two and three quarters um, of a bite uh mark of the two spacing spaces that uh, they'd like to see in the canines anyway um they examined it took lots of pictures skinned the calf out and then uh vic asked if he could take it to town and i said sure and uh, the the assessment of you know i didn't find the wolf track vic did and uh uh, but it, it confirmed what, what I thought. So I took the calf in, um, and it was, uh, you know, a, a point of, of a lot of controversy to get something confirmed because at some point, if you get enough confirms, uh, it means that you go to lethal take on wolves. So over the next 36 hours, people scrutinized that calf. And there was very little communication from me. I tried to stay away. Um, they kept it in a cooler, uh, examined it and re-examined it. And uh, anyway, 36 hours later, um, I went down to the cooler where they were still examining. And uh, and I jokingly said to one of the guys from ODF&W, I said, well, do we got a wolf kill here? Because I knew full well what it was. And uh, he really seriously looked at me. He goes, well, I can't say. And I said, what the hell do you mean you can't say? I said, did somebody take your First Amendment right away from you that you can't tell me what you think? I said, because if that's the case, we have a bigger problem than a dead wolf here. And he got really upset with me. Didn't say much. His face just got really red. They left uh, a couple hours later. I saw the report come out on the internet that it was a confirmed kill. Um, they didn't even bother to call me first. Um, so my relationship with ODF and W and the higher ranking individuals um, started out on really shaky ground and the distrust grew over time. We ended up having a lot of different kills that weren't confirmed. Um, and we knew full well what had taken place. And so that, that was a tough way to start. It continues to be a point of huge frustration. Talked to a guy in Southern Oregon this year, and he got a confirmed kill after I think his seventh calf had been taken. And he said, you know, it wouldn't have been so bad if you guys would have been honest from the beginning. But you denied it was ever wolves. I knew it was, you knew it was, and you wouldn't do the right thing. And, and, uh, and we've seen this play out. And uh, 
it's it's been subjective there's been some biologists that have done a really earnest good job but uh, they uh, they took the right away from the field bios to make the determination and Vic Coggins was the first one to get it taken away he'd served nearly 40 years with the agency and like I say one of the most respected individuals there he confirmed a kill in the in the field and they disputed it and uh, um, and told Vic he couldn't do that again and Vic with tears in his eyes told me he said I, I won't do this anymore if they don't let me uh, uh, say and do what I, I need to do and he retired shortly after that yeah I mean it's 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 so incredibly difficult it's so incredibly difficult and Vic is a great guy um, I got to get him on here at some point but uh, so it it went on like this like it, it's not just like onesie twosie guys are are getting getting calves killed if you can even find the carcass before it's completely eaten yeah in yeah. these huge areas right that's yeah, the incredibly tough, yeah. difficult part yeah and we found the carcasses on private ground and smaller pastures generally we didn't find any on any of the federal lands for years um we did ended up finding some but getting back to the question that you asked me i guess i wanted to set the stage for if everything would have gone according to the oregon wolf plan that had been written out for us and confirmed kills would have been uh, established with integrity i probably wouldn't have gotten more involved but due to the frustration of how the system worked and didn't work for us then i got more heavily involved um, and you are not the only rancher who is suffering losses. No, not at all. No. Um, Rod Chillers at that time was the Wolf Committee Chair for the Oregon Cattlemen's Association. Rod worked extremely hard at that task. I don't know how many trips he made over to Salem. and, and uh, Which takes how long? Well, it's a seven-hour drive. If you stop and go to the bathroom, you run into a little traffic in 205 or... You uh, you get a hamburger on the way. It's a seven-hour drive. Okay. And when you go over there to, to testify, um, you know, do you get, you know, everybody's full attention? You get to sit down and talk for a couple hours? You know, uh, if you go to a commission meeting, a lot of times you're limited to three minutes. Um, uh, here recently, um, the, the legislature... Uh, I've seen them limit you to one minute, two minutes, and and regardless of how far you traveled or what your status is. Awesome. So if you make a 14-hour round trip, then, you know, you'll get between 60 and 120 seconds to state your piece and move on. Yeah, but I, I will say that over time, um, ODF&W did put me on some panels, Um they met with me. Um, individuals reached out to me over the phone. Uh, but, it, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, without the platform of the Oregon Cattlemen's Association, I would have never been able to have that much time, though. It's important that you represent more than just yourself. And that's what you found yourself doing, is representing all these ranchers and everybody who had a vested interest um, and it wasn't just ranchers. I mean, people were having horses and mules killed that, you know, were basically pets. And, like, what are the... Have there been any uh, wolf attacks on livestock that happened close to town? Or is this, like, all out in the boonies? No, it, it, a, a lot of them happened really close to town. How close is close? Well, um, OR4, when, when he got to where he was pretty old uh, uh, he was about 11 years old and that's several years older than the average wolf lives um, his uh, his alpha female had broken a hind leg at one time and so she didn't get around so well and then they had two pups that were traveling with them and less than three miles fr from the town of Enterprise here um, that's where they ended up uh, getting killed themselves 
they had a chronic situation where they were killing sheep and cattle on a regular basis. And so in the, uh, in the spring of 2016, um, that situation just got to where even, uh, I think even the environmental community was willing to say this, this point, uh, uh, something needs to be done. Um, there's a lot of discussion over non-lethal and successful non-lethal. There was more non-lethal work done on, on the Imnaha pack than any pack that I know of. Um, and it just wasn't successful. They had over 50 confirmed kills to their name when they were taken out. And to put that into perspective, a study that was done over in Idaho, and it's called the Oak Leaf Study, um, it showed that for, for every carcass found, not even a confirmed kill, every carcass found that there were seven or eight that weren't. And so if we take that times uh, the factor of, uh, of the confirmed kills, it's 400 animals. And, uh, um, and we tried to shore that up at times with the missing livestock that was in the area of the Imnaha pack, which was huge at one time. They had over 1,200 square miles in, in, their, in their area of, of known wolf activity at, at, at one time. Um, they didn't have any other packs to butt up against, and so they had the world to themselves. Um, so it's a tough deal. For a long time, you know, all of or, or at least 90% of the wolves in Oregon were here in Wallowa County. Yeah, and we still have probably the highest density. Um, Union, Umatilla County, uh, has a high density of, of wolves now. Um, Southern Oregon, uh, you know, what they can find, and uh, uh, there's getting to be more and more wolves down there. Uh, uh, wolves have dispersed from here, of course. OR7 went to California, and, and wolves have been established from here down there. So a wolf came from Idaho to Willowa County, stayed here, killed cattle for a long time, and then it ran all the way to California? Well, no, it was born here in Willowa County. So okay. it was the son of OR4. And at the time of disbursement, there were 16 wolves in the Imnaha pack then. That was in 2011. And 2011 was a hellish year for uh, a lot of ranchers here, and that pack in particular. And uh, when OR7 dispersed or3 dispersed both of them had callers um, or3 was thought to be lost uh, the last signal they got on him was over around fossil and then uh, some years later um, they got a photographic evidence of him uh, close to crater lake and uh, so um, both he and or7 left at the same time we've had uh, wolves that dispersed here and went to other states of Idaho one of them that was in one of my pastures, uh, OR-17, she left and, uh, and made a beeline, went all the way to Montana. And uh, so he, the, the, these guys, are, they are travelers. So when we're talking about OR number, whatever, um, that's the designation they get when they get a collar put on them. Yep, and it goes in sequence. So... Uh, the very first wolf was OR1 and, and right down the line. I think they're up close to 100 or over 100 now. Is it pretty inexpensive to uh, get those collars on? Is that an easy process? Well, um, no, uh, obviously not. OR17, ironically, was caught in a, it was probably the cheapest one because she was caught in a coyote trap that uh, a legal coyote trapper was trapping. He found the wolf in the trap, did the proper thing, called ODF&W. They went and released her, put a collar on, and so that was probably as inexpensive as it gets. But the collar itself, uh, over $3,000. The VHF collars are cheaper, but uh, uh, they, they don't send out a signal that gives you a, a location on a daily basis. Line, line of sight. Yeah. I'll tell you there's another really significant expense to putting on collars, and that is the absolute hazard of 
getting this done from aircraft, which is the way it's typically done. That's the most effective way. And a very good friend of mine uh, works for the uh, the state of Idaho, and he uh, he he makes his living trapping wolves to put collars on them and darting them from helicopters. And he called me this morning, and uh, on Friday he was trying to dart a wolf in the helicopter, experienced failure, and it went down, and uh, it almost killed him and, and the pilot. And they would not, had they died, they would not have been the first who have died trying to do this. Um, and the, the money the money to fund all this, where is it coming from? Well, Pittman Roberts continues to fund a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've tried to get an assessment of what wolves have cost here in Oregon so far. It, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. So, I mean, what is the economic impact? Because so far we've talked about, you know, more or less the emotional impact, but also economic impact of, of losing cattle. I mean, how has how's that af- affected us? Oh, the... <laughs> It's hard to quantify that. Yeah, I mean, I can quantify, and there's good hard data on on the impacts of cattle herds and what it does to cattle herds if uh, if wolves are are in them. Uh, I can give you firsthand accounts of, of what it does to um, the economics, but the overall economics and health and well being of a state, uh, a state agency, um, the the wolf, a lot of the wolf funding for ODF&W, though, comes from federal money still. Nice. So hunters and shooters are, are paying for this? I believe so, yeah. Awesome. I'm sure that's just where they want their money going. Um, well, so where are we with wolves now? Um, if I'm out, uh, you know walking somewhere in the cascades with my dog and a wolf jumps out of the brush and, and, you know, is going to kill my dogs chewing on it. Can you shoot that wolf? No. So phase one of the Oregon wolf plan is where we're at right now on that side of the state. And so we're a divided state in more than one way. So we're in phase three on the Eastern side of the state for the Oregon wolf plan. We're both federally and state delisted which is a big deal. The state uh, has never been at one time both uh, of those. But as of January 4th, uh, 2021, we are both state and federally delisted. The state delisting took place November 9th of 2015, and I was there when that happened, and that happened through a decision that was made through ODF&W, and it was something that we worked on very hard. Um, According to the Oregon Wolf Plan, ODF&W could consider delisting wolves once there were four breeding pairs for three consecutive years. And so when we had that status, we requested that wolves be delisted. Um, That status was reached in 2014, and it was considered throughout the year. We had lots of meetings on it. Um, I traveled to Medford, to Florence, to Bend, to Salem multiple times, and uh, uh, mostly met with ODF&W, ODF&W Commission, and uh, and that was a big deal to me. It, it was one of my goals to see wolves delisted in the state, and the second was to see them federally delisted. And, uh, and I'm not going to take credit for it as if I did it, um, but uh, it, it, it was a, a lot of gratification because there were a ton of people that worked on that. And, you know, I've been really critical of ODF&W, but some of the staff members, some of the commission, they really stuck their neck out on this thing. Um, they did it in in defiance of a governor that wasn't necessarily for it. Um, it, it, These were tough decisions uh, to be made, but uh, it was the the right thing to do. The other thing that we wanted to do and we knew we needed to do was that was a rule. That was a rule that was made 
through the commission. And rules are subject to judicial review and are often overturned. So um, we wanted to back that up with legislation. I asked Greg Barreto if he would be willing to pack legislation that would back up the delisting decision that the commission made. So he did, House Bill 4040, and it sits right there in my office. Uh, proudest piece of paper that I have here, and Greg uh, is a tremendous friend and a great legislator, and he dedicated himself to service. This, he had no uh, dog in the fight, so to speak, but he went to bat for us. Uh, other legislators did. We tried it once, and it failed, and um, we ramped up again. And uh, in 2016, we passed this uh, legislation um, through a Democrat-held House, a Democratic-held Senate, and then the governor herself signed it. And uh, it was a lot of relationship building. It was a lot of storytelling. It was a lot of data sharing. It was legislators coming over from the west side of the state to the east side of the state, learning our situations, listening, looking at the landscape that we were dealing with. And um, in the end, probably the most uh, um, gratifying moment for me was to see a Democrat senator from Eugene vying for this piece of legislation on the House of the Senate, articulating the words that many of us here had given him and doing it better than any one of us could have and swinging the vote. And we narrowly won that vote. And uh, it, it, it was a big deal, and, and it still is. Um, had we not had that legislation, we would not be delisted right now. Shouldn't it be everybody's goal to see a species come off of the endangered species list like the the purpose of the esl is an animal's population gets too low it's in peril so we put it on the endangered species list to give it this umbrella of protection so that that species can propagate and get back up to a point where they no longer need those protections so shouldn't that be everybody's goal well it should and uh and wolves have been wildly successful in Oregon. So if you go back to 2009, when there was only two known wolves, ends up there was more than, but two, two known wolves to today, that's a very short history. And we have wolves in, in every corner of the state. How many wolves do we have now? Well, we have somewhere around 150 known wolves. 150 known wolves. Yeah. And so you get in the other side of the state where that heavy black timber is, an OR3 hung out for four years without being seen at all, uh, it's going to be very difficult to, to collar wolves like you experienced in, in, in open terrain like we have some here um, to, to monitor the, them in any way and, and get a good, accurate count. It can't be done the same way it, it, it has been. It's going to have to do by estimates and, and track verification and some things like that. Yeah. I mean, an incredibly difficult task to, uh, to get an accurate wolf population estimate. Incredibly difficult task. This is the hardest animal that I've ever hunted. I've said that multiple times, but there's absolutely nothing harder out there to hunt than a wolf who has been hunted. And I'm not saying that there's hunting going on but the way the state manages these wolves acts very much like hunting they're calling to try and locate them they're trapping them they're chasing them with aircraft to try and get darts in them and collars on them these wolves are getting hunted it's just that they're getting hunted by the state um, and the same thing has occurred in in other states so so you have some experience with that here james one time the Harold butte pack had gotten to the point where uh, they were chronic depredators. They were killing a lot of my cattle, some of my neighbor's cattle. ODF&W went to lethal take on them twice and removed some wolves. They went to a third time uh, 
and they offered me an agent uh, to go hunt as well. And so I made you my agent, and uh, you went out, and you had a colored wolf to hunt. How did that work out? You had you had radio telemetry. You hunted alongside ODF&W that knew how to use it. How did that work out? Yeah, so I had a, a receiver that I could, um, if I could get within line of sight, it would tell me the direction that that wolf was. I had his GPS location at 6 o'clock every morning, um, and I went and, and lived out there on the ground hunting day and night, and uh, I think I got within 300 yards of him twice. Never saw him. Um, one day I, I followed him for 16 hours, never caught up with him, and then came back to camp exhausted, and uh, they killed a calf that night. So I had, again, every advantage besides an aircraft, and uh, I couldn't even lay eyes on him. And do you think in the terrain that you were hunting, an aircraft would have been beneficial? Uh, no. If it was like a, you know, a, a TAC helicopter with a Hellfire missile and some really cool thermal optics, um, probably could have gotten something done. But uh, those tools have not been available to me for some time now. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, extremely difficult, but the benefit of hunting wolves is, in my opinion, it shoves these wolves away from population centers, keeps them out of private land, keeps them shoved back into wilderness areas, um, where those wolves can experience a lot more success too, because it's not to a wolf's benefit to experience conflict with people. Like that's a problem. You know, you, you go to a campground and you'll see a sign that says, don't feed the bears. A fed bear is a dead bear. Because as soon as that bear gets comfortable around people, it's going to cause problems. And the solution to that problem is inevitably killing that bear. So that's a bad thing. For these wolves, if we hunt them, they're going to go away from that hunting pressure. And it's going to relieve some of these problems. But on the other side of that, it is not going to reduce the wolf population. As we've seen in Idaho, I think you can get like 25 wolf tags in Idaho now. And... Their population is not decreasing. It's not decreasing. Um, and they've given up on even estimating how many wolves they have. It's like, we, we can't figure it out. We're not even going to throw effort at it. Yeah. I think I saw one time that the statistics was for every tag sold in Idaho that about one in a thousand people actually capitalized on filling that tag. It's tough. And it's incidental. You know, they're they're out there elk hunting and, and a wolf happens to come by, that kind of deal. But the, the folks out there who are dedicating themselves to wolf hunting and actually succeeding at killing wolves are very few and far between. I can think of two guys, two guys in all of North America that that can do this and, and have kind of gotten it figured out. And that's, that's a small number. Um, what do you have to say to people in places like Colorado that, um, that are bringing wolves in that are about to go through what we spent the last decade going through. Oh boy, this is tough. You know, um, I worked to try to build better policies. That's what I did. Um, didn't feel like it was my place to advocate for doing something illegal ever. And I still believe that. I will still be the advocate for trying to change a rule or a law that will be beneficial to everybody involved. Um, and so I would say that you got to do that. You, you, you have to, um, to get in there and tell your story, uh, learn as much as you can, uh, see what mistakes we made. Um, hopefully the, the agency people don't make the same mistakes that were made in, in other places. But in the end, you have to make the decision on, on how you're best going to manage for yourself. And then, uh, like, again, I say I, I don't advocate for doing anything illegal but it, 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 it's a tough, tough place to hang in there. And uh, I, can, I can say with integrity today that I never took the low road on this. And it has not been easy. 
And there's been a tremendous amount of ranchers that have not taken the low road on this. Um, and they need to be acknowledged for, for doing what they've done. Um, and for those people within the agency that did their level best to try to help us out, I take my hat off to them because they were in a tough, tough spot. And, uh, and there, there, were, there were a lot of them. But some of the policies and some of the decisions they made really lent toward mistrust. And so as much as anything, um, the agencies need to be open, honest, and, and do their level best to make decisions that lend toward uh, a good relationship between the ranchers and the environmentalists and everybody else. I wish that Colorado just wasn't getting them at all. I wish that we hadn't got them at all. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, to me that I ended up where I am because I had friends that wanted to go to Canada and Alaska and hunt wolves. I never did. Um, and I still don't. I never really wanted to shoot wolves here other than to protect my livestock. Um, and so it's a, you know, I, I kind of got painted as a wolf hater, but that wasn't the case at all. In fact, uh, my little granddaughter Vivian, she's a huge wolf fan. Uh, she's never heard me say a negative word about a wolf. She draws pictures of wolves. She writes stories about wolves. And she says that that's her spirit animal, and and uh, and I get a real big kick out of it. People will probably be surprised to know that. And you know, too, James, uh, that uh, it's not a topic that I talked about a lot at home. Um, and it was kind of a, a funny thing for us to to look in the Oregonian and see my picture on the cover, and here's the wolf guy, and... and uh, You'd hardly heard me say two words about a wolf in the last month, but it's just where I was at the time, and and uh, and um, there's there's other guys that work on it now. I I still do a little bit, but uh, Roger Huffman and Verl Nelson have taken over for the Oregon Cattlemen's, and and uh, and they do an excellent job at uh, at what they do there, but. Uh, you know somebody's got to dig in uh when uh, when when somebody has a calf killed go go with them uh go console them uh, get your sheriff involved um get uh, get to know the individuals who are making this the decisions both on the ground and and up up through the chain um get to know your legislators and and uh and tell your story as things develop and, and go sideways. Um, I still believe that that there'll be a point to where we have responsible wolf management, and uh, it's not going to be easy. But things that we need to do here still, and I'm diverting from Colorado, but things that we need to do, we need to establish a cap. How many wolves can can Oregon responsibly hold? How much game are hunters willing to give up? How much livestock is acceptable loss? At what point is the legislature going to fund compensation? All of those things need to be concluded, and we're far from getting there. There's no cap on the population. There's just limits on the, on the downside. And so we really need to be responsible in establishing that. What is the human tolerance threshold? And um, wolves are here. I'm, I'm never going to say they're here to stay because I, 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 it's not something I desire. And, uh, but um, they're, they're here right now, and, and we need to figure out how to deal with them better than what, what we have been. I agree. Um, many sportsmen look at it as, uh, as a negative you know, it changes their, their, their wilderness experience. Um, a lot of people really romanticize wolves. And, uh, if you see something that's pro wolf, it will usually have an image of a wolf puppy or a wolf howling. Right. But, uh, I just want people to, to try and separate themselves from, from the emotion and, and the mythology of wolves 
and understand that, you know, there's people and animals that are really suffering because, because of, of, uh, of how they interact with wolves now. And it's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard for me to not get upset about, and even like hearing you talk about the state trying to come up with a number that would be acceptable for, for the loss of livestock. You know, I think there's people that, that feel like they have a right to say how many cattle you can lose in a year. And as if, as if that's theirs to talk about, like, Oh, I I'm willing to accept that Willow County is suffering livestock losses as if we don't care about these cattle. Um, and you'll hear people say, well, you're, you're just raising them to, to kill them anyways. So what does it matter? Yeah. Um, what a horrible way to, to look at, at livestock. And yeah. the, one, of the, one of the investigations I went to, a friend of mine was coming in from the hills, and he stopped me on the road, and he said, take a look in the back of my trailer. And so I stepped over there, and, uh, and this cow was a mess. And so I turned around, followed him to his house, called the sheriff, got ODF and W out there. His brother-in-law was a veterinarian, and the cow was still alive. This cow was about 1,400 pounds, and uh, she had been bitten um, all over her forearms. Um, in between her hind legs, um, there was body fluids uh, coming out of perforated places. Around her udder, uh, she she was dry. She she didn't have a calf on her. It was late in the fall, and uh, and there were a, a number of attack sites around her vulva that was pretty well ribboned up there. And anyway, uh, when his veterinarian brother-in-law got there, um, he looked at the cow for just a second, sh- shook his head, and uh, said, "No, you know, she's not going to make it." And anyway, <laughs> I was standing next to this guy, the owner, and uh, I thought he had a cold. And I looked over, <laughs> and he was crying. And, <clears throat> and his wife was crying, and... Uh, and he, he, she retorted, you know, I, I remember when she was born. And uh, this great big old cow. And so we put her down. And uh, anyway, the veterinarian and I, about a week later, we had cattle that uh, neighbored each other. And I neighbored a lot of different people, so it wasn't unusual. But we were sorting cows out together, and we had rode out together that morning, same pickup. And uh, he he said, you know, Todd, he says, uh, I pregged those cows for years. And after you left, I, I, I went back out there. And he said, they got the calf out of that cow. And I thought, well, no way. And then I got my pictures that I'd taken after we put the cow down. And uh, um, the attack site there at the vulva, uh, they had probably run her until she had um, uh, induced abortion, and and then they they bit the calf out of her, um, and it it was it was the worst that I had had seen, and and uh, um, and you know the emotion that that these ranchers have went through, the human toll. The human factor is worse than any of the losses financially, and and tried to reiterate that time after time, but uh, that's that's a pretty tough deal. It was a tough deal for me because, uh, and I don't mean to make it about me, but I had ranchers saying, "What the hell are you doing about it?" And uh, anyway, that's what motivated me to dig in and fight. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that that are appreciative of the thousands of hours you've put in driving to these meetings and and uh you know it it's evident that you know 10 years ago 
you know, you're raising cattle and ranching and, and, and doing this, which, you know, you're still doing today, but, um, now you're the chair of the county commissioners for Lowell County and, um, you're going to be the president of the Oregon Cattlemen's Association and you find yourself in a, in a position where you're representing more and more people, um, largely in part because you found yourself in a situation where you needed to, um, represent more people because we needed it um, and we need it still and I'm appreciative of you well I appreciate that James I blame that on Philip Ketcher I was kind of innocently sitting at home one night and he called me up and said uh, say would you be interested in stepping into a vice president position for the Willow County stock growers and he said it really doesn't entail very much I said, all right. He said, yeah, Cynthia, you know, the secretary, she does most of the work. She just, you just kind of show up at the meetings. I, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, I'll do it. But, uh, I knew it was a bigger job than that because I'd seen how much time others had put into it. And, and uh, I, you know, those leadership jobs, they're, they're really important, and, and communities rely on those leaders. And so I, I took it really serious. I don't regret anything um, if I had my my way and it could just wave a magic wand, I'd probably never have wolves here, and I'd be back out with the cows somewhere and and uh but this is this is a good place to be too, and I really appreciate the people that gave me enough trust to to vote me in and ask me to run for this position. It's a huge honor. Well, if people want to uh, want to talk wolf policy or pick your brain about something, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I have a cell phone with me most of the time, and, and uh, I, I answer calls, so 541-263-0426. All right. And, uh, yeah, I, um, and uh, I have, uh, you know, Wallowa County. Uh, you can look up on our website and i have an email there i have a facebook account and uh, so i'm i try to make myself accessible and and i think it's important that that uh, i i do that and uh, i've traveled to washington state and given presentations and given presentations in california i was invited back to colorado but they decided I was a little too shady of a character to go back there, and, <laughs> and uh, they didn't want didn't want me. So, anyway, I I'm glad to talk about it any time. Uh, there's guys that uh, you know Roger Huffman and, and others that would probably do a better job than me, but I, I'm glad to help out and fill in wherever I can. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dad. Appreciate your time and uh, appreciate your effort and, and knowledge on this. Yep. All right. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>